Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour. My name is Kat Johnson. I am the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. We're thrilled to be here in Denver for our third uh, trip to Slow Food Nations. We've been here all three years that they have hosted this event. Um, we are very grateful for our partners who have made our coverage possible. Um, Hearst Ranch, the Big Green Egg, and the Julia Child Foundation for cul the culinary and gastronomy. The Julia Child Foundation's gastronomy and the culinary arts. It's a real tongue twister, but we love the Julia Child Foundation. They always support our on-tour programming. Um, right now, I am joined by two men who are doing an event here at Slow Food Nations focusing on immigration. Um, Michael Marsh is the president and CEO of the National Council of Agricultural Employers, also known as NCAE. Mm -hmm. uh, welcome, Michael. Thank you. And I, we also have Rudy Arredondo. How did I do? Great. I'm trying to roll my R's to say the name the right way. Um, Rudy is the president and CEO of the National Latino Farmers and Ranchers Trade Association. Welcome, Rudy. Thank you very much. So I'm going to start and try to get a little bit of background information about what each of your organizations do. So, Michael, I'll start with you. Um, what does the National Council of Agricultural Employers do for the people you're representing? Uh, we're a national trade association based in Washington, D.C., and we represent the interests of uh, America's farmers and ranchers in the nation's capital. Uh, we advocate for them on behalf, uh, well, in both in the Congress as well as with uh, the administrative agencies and uh, attempt to achieve uh, uh, some level of sustainability for the farmers and ranchers of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and you come from Wyoming, which you is bet. definitely a rural area. So, I, you know, what kind of connection do you have to the people that you're representing? Yeah, well, you know, my, my parents weren't farmers and ranchers. My parents were educators. Yeah. Uh, but right across the street from me was a farm uh, where, uh, you know, in, in addition to being able to uh, hunt pheasants in the morning before I went to school with my little brother, I also got the opportunity when a knock came on the door at 2 o'clock in the morning to go set water with my neighbor, I always had to say yes. Uh, and that worked out really well until about uh, one of those nights when you're out setting water, it's about 2.30 in the morning, and you see a rattlesnake come out of the <laughs> come out of the irrigation pipes, and it's not quite as glamorous you might have otherwise expected it. But uh, actually, I I I got I went to school at the University of Wyoming, got my first degree in history. Thought I wanted to be a lawyer, and so I went to law school, and then went back and got another degree in accounting and worked in public accounting uh, for a number of years with a couple of different firms around the country. Developed a niche in the area of uh, fraud investigation and forensic accounting. And that really launched me into, the, into agriculture full-time because right here in Denver, when I was working with a CPA firm here, I, I ran across a fraud with the National Potato Board uh, that, uh, uh, because of the notoriety associated with the embezzlement, uh, launched me full-time into agriculture. And I was the CFO of the Almond Board of California for about seven years, uh, taking a case there uh, regarding the First Amendment all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And then subsequently, I ran the Dairy Association in California for about 15 years. Uh, I, I also worked with a group of attorneys in Sacramento uh, uh, doing litigation support on complex financial transactions before I decided I'd really like to get back to advocating for farmers and ranchers full time and, and that's when I was uh, offered the job in D.C. and I moved back to D.C. but I'm glad to be here 
where it can be hot, but you don't have to deal with 94% humidity. That so swamp of deep, yeah, God bless swamp Colorado. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I feel like it gets that way in New York as well, where it's just like you're just, it just feels like you're swimming through the oh, air. Yes. Uh, it's very nice to be in Denver. Um, and then, Rudy, what about you? Tell me about your work. Okay. Uh, well, I come from a farm worker family. Okay, we were migrant farm workers who traveled throughout the United States uh, following the crops. And uh, then I also had the, the, uh, you know, the, the honor of working under President Carter at the farm, what there was then Farmers' Home Administration within the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And uh, subsequent to later, I also worked in the uh, Clinton administration and uh, rural development mission area. And so after... Uh, after that, in 2004, you know, I have been involved in agriculture. My family says, my farm workers, we acquired land in northwestern Ohio. My, my family uh, farms, we have seven small family farms in northwestern Ohio. And uh, two, uh, three of my sisters and my brother have farms in that area. So, in 74, I went to Washington and uh, working for the Migrant Legal Action Program, and I come to the United Farm Workers Union as one of the organizers in South Texas, uh, and then in Ohio with uh, Valdemar Velasquez with Farm Labor Organizing Committee. But, you know, we, farm workers are nothing more than farmers without land. So, we had... Uh, a relationship with a rural coalition, and even, they are a multi-ethnic grassroots organization in, in the United States, one of the very few private nonprofits. And so, but we felt that even though we had representation within that organization, it was important for Latino farmers and ranchers to get involved in the policies that impacted their ability to farm. So we do we provide that input, technical assistance in terms of organizing, uh, identifying those groups, work with all the administrative agencies with USDA to uh, make sure that they are aware of the programs that are available within the USDA. And we represent over 75,000 Latino farmers and ranchers throughout the United States. So that's how we're... What, what's, uh, what are some of the numbers or breakdown like percentage of farm workers who are Latino and maybe landowners who are also Latino? Well, the, the, the farm workers, we have partner organizations that we work with that provide us with some of those, identifying those farm worker groups that are ready to be able to undertake the role of uh, production because mm -hmm. we have to make sure that, that they have the, the, the land is, is, is in their hands, they control it, in order to be able to get them to be able to be eligible to us for assistance for the U.S. Department of Agriculture program. So that's part of our role mm -hmm. as technical advisors and organizers. Um, and in terms of, of farm workers, we can, in terms of, of our membership, I would say probably 68% of our membership or cattlemen, mm -hmm. and the rest are row crops. Okay. Okay. Especially crops, Got as they're called. Um, so now let's talk a little bit about how your two organizations work together. 
Because you're both based in D.C., so tell me a little bit about that club, those collaborations. Well, uh, we've, I've been working with the National Council of Agriculture Employers now for, what, seven years? Seven years or something You, like you that. predate yeah. me. Yeah, because uh, Frank Gasparini was, you know, I'm, we've been friends for a while, and so we felt that it was important because there was a, a there, there was a time in which there was a tremendous amount of animosity mm. between the uh, National Council of Agriculture Employers and and the and other farm groups, especially in terms of the farm worker advocacy groups, and that's not useful to any of us. It doesn't mean that we don't have to disagree, but it is important because we want a stable labor force. It's important for all of us to be able to have that ability to uh, have the workers harvest the crop and be able to, to meet needs. It's important for the mm -hmm. food production of this country. So yeah. we have, uh, you know, worked towards establishing that relationship. And let's, and one of the things that I asked Slow Foods was to invite Michael so that we can have the different players within the farm labor so that we can come to some commonality of interest in which we can work together towards resolving this stable labor force issue. Okay? I, actually, I think, uh, I think Rudy makes some really good points there because if, if you're a farmer and you don't have somebody there to help you plant your crops, harvest your crops, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? How are you going to then, after you, after you harvest them, how are you going to get that crop to market? And how are you going to make sure that we retain agricultural production in the United States? It might shock some people, uh, but when you think about it, today, 50% of all the fresh fruit we consume in the United States comes from overseas. It's imported in the United States. And a third of our fresh uh, vegetables are, are likewise. So it's better, in my opinion, I think probably my members' opinion, Rudy's opinion as well, that we sustain ourselves here in the United States first before we start exporting crop overseas. So, and, and the magnitude of, of, the, of the challenge is there because yeah, in the, the, the USDA just published the 2017 Census of Agriculture. And in 2017, there were 2.4 million ag workers in, in the census that were reflected in the census. Actually, in California, there's some data that might indicate uh, that uh, in 2016, you had almost a million people had at least one job in agriculture uh, sometime during the year. So it's, it's very important that we work together uh, farmers and ranchers and the labor community so that we find those areas of commonality. One, one of the other things that's important to understand too is that there's not a lot of, on, on farms and ranchers in the United States today, there's not a lot of domestic workers that are showing up and saying, you know, I want to be a seasonal, you know, farm worker. I want to, I want to pick uh, the cherries in, in Washington State uh, for three or four weeks out of the year. Or I want to, I want to uh, pick tomatoes in Florida uh, for a few, few months out of the year. Um, yeah, so we have to have a workforce that's there, that's stable, that's reliable, because if we don't have workers that are there, then, then we're unsustainable as, as, as farmers and ranchers as well. So we've got to work together, and I think that that's been very important. Another aspect, too, of course, with regard to the, the farm labor uh, situation are two things, probably, uh, to bring up. One is that of that 2.4 million uh, workers, about uh, 200,000 of them in 2017 received uh, visas to come into the United States uh, temporarily to work on farms and ranches. Uh, and so uh, uh, out of that 2.4 million, about 200,000 
uh, uh, workers that are coming in from foreign countries, that leaves you with about 2.2 million. And of that 2.2 million, uh, about 1.1 million, about half of them are probably unauthorized and are not supposed to be here. But for me, as a, as a representative of farmers and ranchers, we have to have those workers here. And importantly, from our perspective, when we're working with members of Congress, is that we have to have, make sure that those families that are there with those workers who are maybe unauthorized, they have to be protected too. Uh, so today we're working with the Judiciary Committee and the House of Representatives, trying to cobble together some pathway that we can, we can not only make sure that we have a reliable and stable workforce, as Rudy mentioned, but that also the, the workers who are here and have dedicated their lives to making America great are able to stay here and also keep their families here too. So, um, the, the visas you were mentioning for like seasonal workers, is, is that the same thing as the H-2A visa? That, yes, it That's is. That's what that is. So, in, in December, there was um, the NC, NCAE um, was suing to stop the wage hikes for those visas, yeah. which might seem like counterintuitive, but can you explain why that is, why, yeah. why it could be detrimental to have well, a wage hike? Let's say that Rudy's a farmer here in Colorado, and he's, let's say he's up in Brighton, and he's got a, a vegetable farm, and he can't get enough domestic workers to come to, to, to do the job. So Rudy, even though he's already entered into his contracts with Walmart and Costco and Kroger's and King Supers, and for, for the coming year with regard to the crops and the vegetables, he's going to sell them. He gets, he budgets, because he's a smart businessman, he budgets a 10% increase in his wages. Well, what happened with regard to the uh, increase in the wages that was going to come for H-2A workers, which also have to be paid as well to the domestic workers who are in corresponding employment uh, with those uh, foreign seasonal temporary workers, is that it, it increased by 22.8% year over year. That is, that is a terrific low to bear. Now, if Rudy had budgeted, uh, say, a 10% increase, and now he gets hit with 22.8%, that 13% was probably his profit for the year. Mm -hmm. So when we reviewed the methodology that was being used to establish that wage, we actually went to the, uh, because what it's supposed to do is protect uh, the domestic workers from H-2A in infringement upon their, their, uh, their uh, livelihoods. So it, we, we, and it's called an adverse effect wage rate. So you want to be sure that employment of H-2As does not adversely affect the domestic worker. So we said to the Secretary of Labor, we said, prove to us that there's an adverse effect on the domestic workforce. 3.8% unemployment, and we don't have anybody showing up and even applying for the job. We're not sure we're having an adverse effect. So make sure that you, what you're doing is right so you don't put Rudy out of business. And then Rudy, what's like, you know, the, your perspective on that? How do we, you know, how do we protect the the small farmer, um, but also make sure that we're being able to provide, you know, equity for the farm workers. Well, one of the things that, that concerns us with regard to uh, this process is that our farmers, for the most part, don't utilize H-2As, okay? It's either family farm harvest mm -hmm. or sometimes in terms of the communities. So we don't have we monitor what's happening with regard to the NCAE and, and their policy, and we work together, and we don't always agree, okay? Uh, however, that's a small piece of the whole, which is we want to be able to have a stable labor force, protect our domestic workers, and 
H2As or a piece of which, like I said, for the most part, our, our, our farmers and ranchers don't utilize. There's a few, but they, you know, we're talking about maybe two, maybe three workers, if, if that. Um, but the concern that we have is that as a result of this immigration issue, there has been a winning issue for a lot of our uh, folks that, that use it to get themselves elected. We are working towards trying to find a way to convince them that that's not the best position that there is with regard to having a stable labor force. As it is right now, I mean, last year we had one of our uh, uh, farm uh, cooperatives in Michigan that they had 10, 10 acres of tomatillo, okay? And this was a project between Michigan State University and our cooperative we couldn't get a crew to harvest it and because there, there were raids. There were uh, the uh, border patrol were stopping our produce trucks in the interstate, and we called Debbie Seven. I said, "Look, this is this is we're in a harvest season. Mm -hmm. We can't." afford to have that kind of, you know, scaring our, our uh, farm workers into being uh, denied their ability to have resources to feed their family. So this brings up a question um, that I think is on a lot of people's minds right now is we're entering a presidential election season where, yes, a lot of, there has been, some would say, you know, a pleasantly surprising amount of discussion so far about agricultural policy, but arguably not still not enough. So what do each of you, what do you think, um, what do you wish candidates would spend more time talking about? Rural America. Rural America and the fact that we don't have the kind of political clout that we once had. And it, you know, from the time eternal that I've worked in rural America most of my life is that that the uh, political power has transitioned from rural America into the urban setting, where you have the neglect because, you know, we're farms, we're farmers, we're not politicians, we're not, uh, you know, lobbyists. So we occasionally have a fly-in, and that's usually we piggyback on some of our other colleagues who have the resources to be able to do that kind of uh, cost, assume some of that cost. We can only bring maybe two, three of our farm workers to come to Washington right. during the time that is critical in terms of appropriations on for agriculture and or uh, the farm bill debate, which is every five years. So, you know, that's that's really critical for us in terms of un having our farmers and ranchers understand all politics are local. And if you're having issues with your farm income, which in, I think in Minnesota it has been down like for 30% now, and we're having foreclosures. We just had floodings in Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, and we are going to have, I think, a shortage of food because that infrastructure is going to take anywhere between five to 10 years to be able to correct. So what are we going to do in the meantime? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, and, and those are kind of issues that, that we have undertaken. One of the things that, that I, I'm form, uh, part of a coalition uh, to develop an infrastructure, infrastructure bank. And we're asking uh, that we uh, put this bank so that we don't have to assume debt and use existing debt in terms of treasuries that are owned by municipalities and state governments and you know pension funds and so forth to the tune of $14 trillion. Just as uh, uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton did, uh, like uh, um, you know, FDR and uh, Lincoln during the Civil War, in order to be able to repay the debt that was assumed as a civil, as, uh, you know, civil war. So we feel that we're asking for 14 trillions dollars just to be able to bring the infrastructure up to the level that it it is a start, starts to be function functional, and without assuming any additional debt. We are looking for sponsors, and I'm hoping that we can get a resolution out of this body here endorsing that infrastructure bank because you know we, we really need it. We really need that infrastructure to be functional. Quick follow-up question to that, and then I'm going to ask Michael this okay. same question, but do you think that uh, that sort of like reserve for rebuilding infrastructure could be part of the Green New Deal idea that a lot Absolutely. of people are talking about? Yes. We are asking. We've met, we've met with the state legislatures, and we've met with the, with the city councils and county commissions, and we have a lot of endorsements. But we still to find somebody in either the House or the Senate to be able to sponsor the draft bill that we put together. And then, yeah. Michael, what about you? Yeah, I I think that a couple of things that would really be positive for agriculture would be if we had some of the politicians that are in, in the running at the present time say, We've, we're going to get immigration reform done, and we're going to get this taken care of. I worked on a bill in 2012 and 2013 that actually passed out of the United States Senate where we actually had a fix comprehensively for immigration within the United States that would have helped agriculture. Yep. But unfortunately, Speaker Boehner, after he heard from the Freedom Caucus, was told, if you bring it to the floor, you're no longer going to be Speaker. That's got to get taken care of. Uh, trade policy has got to change. Uh, you've, uh, part of the reason we've got so many bankruptcies taking place in the Midwest is that folks don't have a place to ship their corn or their soybeans. And when they, they're harvesting their crop this year, they don't have any place to store it because they've got no market for it. Uh, Louisiana, some of the Louisiana soybean folks last year didn't even harvest their soybean crops because they'd have the expense, additional expense of, of course, in, in investing in the, in the harvesting of it, the fuel, the, uh, the energy to do that, uh, the combines, that type of thing. But, but then once they harvest it, they don't have any place to store it because they got last year's crop that still isn't being sold. And that's, that's just nuts. And another aspect of that is one of the challenges that we've got, and one of the reasons we've got so many imported fruits and vegetables in the United States, gets back to this issue we were just talking about a moment ago with regard to, to wages. Uh, because if the, if the American farmer can't be sustainable, how can Rudy, let's say again, he's, he's that same farmer in, in Brighton, have, the, have a wage go from 10.69 an hour to 13.13 an hour, and then he's got to pay the, the housing, the transportation in and out, the visa costs, all those, those other costs associated with that, How's he going to uh, compete with a farmer just across the border who's now moved his operation from the United States and moved it uh, south in, into Mexico, and now he's having to pay somewhere between 10, 7 to $15 a day 
versus the wages you have to pay here. So we have to make sure that the U.S. farmers and ranchers are sustainable and they've got the ability to do that. So I think that our politicians uh, and those folks that are running for office, I hope they, I hope some of them actually take a deep breath and say what they're talking about because we are America and we are a nation of immigrants and we need to work together. Awesome. Um, one thing we also touched on on the same thread of this is um, that there, you know, has become an increasing divide between rural and urban America. And I, actually, all three of us come from rural backgrounds and now live in urban centers. Correct. Um, coming from that perspective and with the work that you do now, what do you think is, um, what are some of the biggest misunderstandings that you find people in, in urban America have about rural America? Well, from my perspective, what I find is that uh, urban folks have no idea where their food comes from in many really? instances. And, yeah. you know, young children think that it comes from the you know, grocery store at the corner. So they have no idea in terms of what it takes to get from the field to the table. Uh, you know, one of the best illustrations in terms of bringing the, the mindset of understanding is in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I, had, I was invited to this uh, event that they were doing there through Michigan State University Extension. And the city of Kalamazoo was sourcing in all the, around the community anywhere between 100, uh, 50 to 100 miles you know, in terms of local farmers. They, the, the hospital had its own uh, high tunnel, okay, where they, and they had an, a cafeteria that uh, provided food for the city. I mean, if you want to go into the cafeteria in the hospital, you were able to do it, and all, the, all their food was sourced from the local. The other thing that was, to me, was just incredibly bright was that from kindergarten, they were teaching the children to grow food. And then they would bring them to the um, Kalamazoo Community College where they had like four floors. Each of the floors had an industrial uh, sized kitchen. And they taught classes to the EMTs, the, uh, the physicians and the residents there at the hospital were taking classes in terms of using food as medicine. Wow. Okay? Now the children from kindergarten and then into the great grade school, they, they were having them, uh, whatever food they produce, packaged there mm -hmm. at, the, at the college, and the children would take it home. Can you imagine me denying my kids? not to eat what they brought to me. So they were, they were conditioning me to understand that this is, this is what is good in terms of a healthy living, you know? Providing, uh, you know, the family with, with trying to get away from the fast food stuff. Uh, they also had this very high-end kitchen where they had a restaurant that was open once uh, in the weekends, and you had to have a reservation. But everything was cooked there, and everything was sourced within this, this radius. So I'm very you know, pleased to have been exposed to that, because I think that's one of the ways that you begin to change the health 
and, and safety of our food via that kind of a vehicle. So thank you, Kalamazoo. <laughs> yeah. Um, Michael, what do, you, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, I think it's uh, having worked, to, been, worked so much in my career in California, uh, in agriculture, where you've got farms and communities right next to each other. Yeah. And it, it was amazing to me that you had somebody that from Silicon Valley that might think, I want to enjoy that bucolic lifestyle of living in the country. And then they build a, a, a multi-million dollar home right next to a dairy farm, and then they're upset because they've got dust and flies and some of the other accoutrements that you might have associated with livestock Yeah, production. it happens. Yeah. <laughs> and, but at the same time, I think that, that there are some things that we can, we can do. Uh, for instance, in 2008, 2009, when the global economy kind of shook and whatnot, I had dairy farmers in California that couldn't, couldn't put food on their own tables. But at the same time, we had people starving in, in America as the food banks were running out of food. And uh, that was particularly acute within the state of California. So I worked with the hunger community and I worked out some, some situations where we could donate fresh milk to deliver to uh, a bottler who agreed to go ahead just for the cost of bottling it and put it into the bottle and then distribute it back to the food banks. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders put in a bill in August of 2009 uh, that would have put a check in the, in the pockets of the farmers around the United States who were having such a difficult time. Instead, we went to Senator Boxer and Senator Feinstein. We said, instead of doing that, why don't we take that and buy food and put it into the food banks? Because then you help the farmers out, but you help out the hungry in America who don't have two dimes to rub together. So I think there are things that we can do in agriculture. And we're, um, I want to touch one, one thing about Green New Deal, too. Mm -hmm. Because agriculture represents a huge opportunity for sequestration of carbon. Um, you can change uh, your tillage method, method to use conservation tillage. You reduce the amount of passes you have over that field. You're able to go ahead and maintain a lot of that sequestration in, that, in the earth versus when you deep rip that, that uh uh, that that uh, land in order to, to plow it up and then float it, disc it, float it, and then plant your crop. And you don't, uh, you don't Im negatively impact your yields that much either by doing that. But that does sequester carbon. I created a company when I was working with the dairy farmers that tried to put methane digesters on dairy farms to capture the poop and turn it into energy. You know, right? Electrify homes, electrify the, the farm, uh, electrify the vineyard that's next door. But I had a problem because the utilities did not want uh, distributed generation. So I had to run additional legislation in the California legislature to just allow us to run the meter backward as we were producing the power that went out to the utilities that then they sold to consumers. And our farmers didn't make a penny. It was, it was a very challenging thing, but it's one of those things we can do if we work together. And I think, uh, frankly, we're stronger when we work together. On the note of education, and I think your your story about Kalamazoo is, I, I think, an interesting way that a lot of communities are trying to bring education about farming in rural America into cities. Correct. And I think that there's a, another interesting trend happening, especially around New York, where I live, is the agritourism business of the Hudson Valley is, like, booming. And it's another creative way for farmers to supplement their, in, their income. Um, do either of you see that happening a lot with um, farmers that you work with? And do you think it's something that could grow further? Uh, there, there's very limited. I, I know, I, like in Texas, I have a couple of, of uh, long-term friends that uh, or farmers that I know that are using, you know, bringing in, for instance, for hunters, 
they do some of that mm -hmm. uh, under NRCS, the Natural Resources and Conservation Service, with the U.S. Department of Agriculture does have some of those programs. But you know, we we don't want we don't particularly very fond of tourists coming mm -hmm. to disrupt our operations because we don't we don't have big operations. You know, our farmers uh, run anywhere between a quarter of an acre up to maybe 200 acres. Some have more, but that's mostly the exception. So, and the other thing is also that we as small farm, I mean, as small producers, we produce 23% of food, real food. So, you know, uh, the tourism is not a big deal in our, in our uh, experience with our farmers, uh, but I know that they're out there. And it's an interesting way to like educate yeah, people that no, live in. Right. What, Michael, yeah. do you see that at yeah, all? I, I see it maybe in a little different way. In, well, in probably in two different ways. One is that it's worth the effort to get folks to your farm. Uh, but I see it on a, also in a different way, other people to get on your farm. And that's getting your politicians to come to your farm so that they know what they're doing either in here in, in Denver in the capital or in Cheyenne in the capital or in uh, uh, whatever, if you're in Santa Fe that they know exactly what's happening on the farm. So you get the politicians there, and you let them experience, have a little bit of that experience so that when you're saying, I can't find enough domestic workers to come into my business to help me harvest my crop, they actually can relate to that a little bit. It becomes real It becomes them. more real, absolutely, and, and, and that can help us. Another area of education that, that we work on, and Rudy comes to our event every year, is that we put on an ag labor forum because we are committed to the fact that you have to treat your workers with respect and with dignity. Uh, they're here to do a job. You also have to protect their safety as well as their health while they're there. And you have to be assured, uh, you have to assure uh, yourselves that as, as you're doing that, you're also uh, keeping folks in compliance with the laws. So we have attorneys from around the country that participate in the Ag Labor Forum. And people who come, if you're a member of the Society for Human Resource Management, you can actually earn credits for attending some of our programming uh, because it helps you stay in compliance with, with all existing federal and state laws and regulations around employment. Um, the, it, it is a challenge, but it is something from my perspective that my board of directors had said we need to do, and that is make sure that we're keeping folks in compliance with existing laws. As a matter of fact, at our last executive committee uh, meeting, there was, a, there was an outfit down in, in Georgia, and I'm sure Rudy's read about this, but apparently they were falsifying workers' compensation uh, uh, statements they were giving to farmers uh, to the tune of about $120 billion, according to the allegation. Yeah. And as a result of that, the workers who may have been injured on those farms had no coverage. They had nobody to turn to, and that's not okay. Uh, so it's also good that you have accountability within that uh, educational uh, 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 curriculum so that you understand that at the end of the day that everybody's going to be protected. The farm worker's going to be protected as well as the farmer. So you're both uh, participating in an event at Slow Food Nations later this afternoon, uh, focusing on immigration, which we've sure. talked about a little bit already, but what do you anticipate will be sort of the main topics of discussion at that event? What do you hope um, that the audience gets out of it? What do you hope like is, happens? Well, what I hope in th we get out of there is in terms of educating those that are be in attendance mm -hmm. with regard to the issues of immigration. Uh, we also hope that we are looking in terms of uh, making sure that 
as a result of our hopefully interaction with the audience that we find uh, ways in which we can try to establish a path to resolving this immigration issue. Now, you know, I'm not very optimistic in the short term, but ultimately we are going to be needing people who are going to be able to harvest that crop because otherwise it's going to be a disaster. Mm -hmm. We don't have food harvesters to put those, uh, those food from the field to the table. And, you know, in fact, one of the things that we are having uh, come this Monday, we're having a, uh, you know, a community farmers and ranchers committee meeting in uh, Antonito to discuss this is one of the many issues that we we are, are going to be discussing. And I have the peanut gallery telling me that it's uh, in on the San, San Luis Valley, Colorado, okay? That's on Monday. Make sure we get that in. Yes. Oh, yeah, no. Like I say, I have uh, this peanut gallery that follows me around. That, your fan club is here. <laughs> yes. Uh, Michael, what are you um, most looking forward to at the yeah. event today? I, I think, uh, of course, having the dialogue and having the discussion. Uh, because if we're not talking with one another, we're talking too much at one another. And that's not, not a good way to advance policy. Uh, so I think it's always a good idea to have a conversation. Um, at the same time, there's some critical issues that we do need to face up to. Uh, we need to have an ethical treatment of our workforce. We also need to be transparent in the way we as farmers and ranchers handle things. Because at the end of the day, if you're doing that, if you're treating uh, your workers and you're complying with the laws, at the end of the day, you have greater consumer confidence in the crop you're producing on the, in, the, in the field. And as a result of that, hopefully they're going to buy American crops, fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, versus buying them from somebody who's importing them. And that's what we need to do, is strengthen America's farmers and ranchers. So my last question for you is, after Slow Food Nations, when you're back in DC, what are some of the uh, first things you're gonna be working on going forward? Well, <clears throat> I have a, uh, several meetings on this infrastructure bank, mm -hmm. okay, that I'm gonna be dealing with. Uh, we also are looking in terms of uh, you know, best practices in terms of making sure our agencies are in tune with us so that we can coordinate with them because they have the resources. We are the organizers in our communities and making sure that our, our folks have the best practices and the resources to be able to accomplish that. Yeah, and I, I think when, when I get back, I've, I've got a few things to do. Of course, one is to continue our preparations for our Ag Labor Forum coming up in December in Las Vegas, uh, because we do want to make sure that every year people come and they leave with more th than they arrived with. Uh, right now, we're looking at a couple of issues that are very, very troubling to me, and uh, as, as somebody uh, who, uh, who's worked in agriculture for a number of years. Uh, there are some situations, and hopefully they're isolated, where a worker that's wanting to come into the United States is actually having to pay somebody for the job to come into the United States, and that should never, ever happen. Uh, somebody shouldn't be held hostage because they want to work here honestly and legally, should not be held hostage uh, by somebody that's simply in their pocket and telling them, we'll get you a job in the U.S., and so then when you go home, after, after the season, and you're, you're going home, you can take care of your family, you can buy health insurance, you can make sure that you're able to build a home uh, where you're coming from. 
But that's one of the issues that I think uh, we've got we've got to look at as agriculture and make sure we're doing everything to prevent that type of human trafficking aspect of that that it doesn't happen at all. That's alarming. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, well, I want to thank both of you for sitting down with me to talk about um, Happy to do it. all the work that you're doing and the event that you have coming up this afternoon. We got a little preview of what to expect. Um, do you happen to know where that event is taking place? If you don't, it's, it's no. here. It's here it's in here. Denver. <laughs> Somewhere. I can direct people who are interested to go yes, to slowfoodnations.org and find um, the immigration uh, event that's happening this afternoon, I believe at 4 p.m. 4 okay, or 5. That's correct. 4 p.m. It's where? At the Food for Change tent. See, our peanut gallery is coming in Perfect. handy today. Yes, yes. They have the information that we need. Yes, super. Um, so once again, Michael Marsh yep. from the National Council of Agriculture Employers, Agricultural Employers. Correct. Thank you. And Rudy Arredondo from the National Latino Farmers and Ranchers Trade Association. Thank you so much. I for hope that. I pronounced your name. Yes, already. you did. <laughs> Thank you. And Thanks. Thanks. one final yeah. thing is that in uh, uh, October 31st, November 1st and 2nd, the National Latino Farmers and Ranchers is going to be ha having our annual meeting. And it's, uh, it's going to be at Isleta Pueblo. And uh, we are going to be inviting Secretary Purdue from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And we are also extending an invitation to uh, Victor Villalobos, who is the Secretary of Agriculture, of Agriculture for Mexico. Wow. Because so we, we need to bring that as they're working on NAFTA and they're working on uh, agriculture issues. So if they're anyway. listening, guys, be there. Yes, yeah. please. Absolutely. I love that. Oh, wait. My name is Kat Johnson for Heritage Radio Network. Thanks once again to Slow Food Nations for having us, to Slow Food USA, to our supporters Big Green Egg, Hearst Ranch, and the Julia Child Foundation for making this coverage possible. Um, stay tuned. We'll be back in a few minutes with more interviews. Thanks, Kat. Thanks.